Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I am your host, Brad Johnson. Here we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. As always, with your questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. I also invite you to stick around for my sister, Ambassador Shabazz, who joins us. She'll listen to the conversation with our guests, and then she joins me after the program with a segment we call How We Move. And she also shares a little bit of insight as to what she's been up to, and she's always doing some cool stuff. So... I have a soft spot for South Carolina and the food that comes from that part of the country. From the first time I tasted Alberta Wright's version of she crab soup at her legendary New York City Theater District restaurant, Jezebel. Alberta, who was born and raised in Swamp Fox, South Carolina, became a second mom to me. Her eye for design, clothing, art, and food made any time spent around her a treat for all the senses. While Alexander Smalls, my dear friend, has picked up that baton and carried it for, I won't even say how many decades, I'll let him get into that. But uh, he began his illustrious career as a restaurateur in the 90s and furthered my appreciation for low country cuisine when he opened Cafe Beulah, his first restaurant. If I remember correctly, and I'll ask him to, when he comes on to correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember butter-toned walls and sepia-framed family photos and all along the wall. And that's how I remember that, that room. It was elegant. It was beautiful. Alexander, of course, was an immaculate host. I want to talk to him about how that came so naturally to him. But he walked away from a career, his first career, his first profession, as an opera singer, and he told the New York Times in 2020, quote, an operatic career was my dream, but I was not able to break that glass ceiling as an African-American male, end quote. In 1990, after starring in Porgy and Bess at the Houston Grand Opera, where the production and Mr. Smalls won a Tony and a Grammy, he reluctantly left that stage. I say that stage because restaurants can be their own stage. He then set about reinventing himself as a chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author, winning a James Beard Award for Between Harlem and Heaven in 2018. His latest offering, Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen, is available now, and it's a tribute to his South Carolina heritage and the music that inspired him. Several restaurants followed, including Minton's and The Cecil in Harlem. He has also enjoyed multiple TV appearances. And Alexander Smalls has emerged as one of the most important voices in the African-American culinary journey. And I think I'm going to have to spread those borders out to around the world when we start to hear about this next venture that I'm going to ask Alexander to talk to us about. His newest venture is the African Food Hall. I hope I pronounced this right. Al-Kubulun, with locations in both Dubai and London, and another one scheduled to open in the U.S. Each food hall will highlight the food and cultures of Africa, as well as its local influence in the cities where the halls are located. So, Alexander Smalls, my old friend, so nice to see you. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. Sir Brad, nice to be here. Thanks for that warm introduction and for mentioning our dear friend, Alberta Right, who yeah. was a huge influence and bigger than life feature that we all enjoyed so much, both in New York and in Paris. That's right. 
Alexander, we kick things off with what I call our short order questions. I don't have to explain to you what short order means. So mm. tell me, what music is in heavy rotation on your playlist lately? What are you listening to? Let me just take this moment to say I'm listening to my latest recording that came out in June, essentially celebrating what I considered endangered African-American music. I've taken Negro spirituals and rearranged them, engaged them, put them in a new musical landscape to extraordinary Grammy award-winning producers. And I'm listening to it on Spotify. Okay. Can we find it there? Alexander Smalls on Spotify? Yes. It's called Let Us Break Bread Together. Love that. (laughs) Love that. That's going in heavy rotation on my playlist. So tell me, go to cocktail for you. Always something with bourbon. Over the years, as Brad, being in this industry, I crafted what I call the Alexander cocktail, which is fine bourbon made with ginger ale or iced tea. And it's topped off with spice, ginger candy, and lime. Love it. Ooh, that sounds fantastic. You know, in my last place, Post and Beam, I had the bartender. Every pre-shift, he would make me a ginger beer with a good dose of lime. Oh, man, that was a great drink. I looked forward to that. Alexander, vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, or other? How's your diet these days? What are you eating? Everything. So that would be other. Everything good. Everything good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. And I don't want to cause any trouble for you, but can you tell me your favorite New York City restaurant of the moment? Oh, my. Wow. I cannot. All right. (laughs) Not one. Now you're going to get everybody mad at you. Because, are you kidding what you're asking me? Let's just say that I love dining locally and I have a few neighborhood spots. I live in Harlem. I love Harlem. And I find myself in those places. Obviously, my favorite kitchen is my own at home, whereas I do a lot of salons and wonderful quaint dinners with friends. Nothing pleases me more than that. Yes. No, I do know that. How about your favorite New York City walk? Wow. I love to walk around Harlem. I love Sugar Hill. I love Hamilton Heights, Hamilton Terrace. Really gorgeous, beautiful architecture and landscape and parks. And it reminds me of Europe. I enjoy that. Yeah. I stayed on 123rd Street the last time that I was in the city and walked from there to Central Park and over to Fifth Avenue. And it was just beautiful. The weather was great. And I missed that energy New York gives you. And then the park is just always special. Something so wonderful about the architecture of Harlem that was heavily influenced by the Dutch and the German, the Stanford White buildings on Strivers Row. Harlem is my home. It's my piece of the pie. I love spending time walking the streets of Harlem. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's jump in here. So meals, music, and muses. I had to say that a few times before I came on air just to make sure I didn't stumble, but I read that you said it's not your mama's kitchen. So talk about the book, Alexander. What's in there? It was an opportunity to celebrate Southern cooking, the African kitchen, having had such a, a wide, varied career, having been able to connect the dots between African-American food and African food, 
which I did in Between Harlem and Heaven, and then to reapproach traditional dishes that I grew up with, celebrated home chefs that I knew that were incredible in their offerings, particularly with the African-American community food as currency. We essentially spend it as, as a way of communicating with each other, but also continuing a tradition of heritage community. At the same time, it was, it's a source of pride and dignity. When we didn't own ourselves, we owned that recipe. Miss Means makes the best pound cake, Miss Mildred and her fried chicken. So food for us really holds our stories and our secrets. So I wanted to take what I considered choice dishes and bring them into a modern conversation. And then I wanted to put that other very important ingredient about being African-American, music. There is a playlist at the end of each chapter that engages and helps expand those culinary offerings that I put in each chapter. So it was fun. It was very exciting and extremely gratifying to do that book. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. I can't wait to read that. You've been doing a bit of traveling over the past few years. So how are you and where have you been? Where have you been? As my dear friend Cicely Tyson would say, life ain't been no crystal staircase. But we make things happen. I've been on a journey. I see it. And my culinary efforts have really also turned into activism. Activism in the sense that I want to make sure not only that I build a platform and a bridge and a path for young African-American chefs and chefs of color coming behind me, but also I want to clear the field and continue to establish the foodways of the African diaspora as a, a elevated discipline worthy of the attention that any food or any culture receives. The interesting thing that I don't know if I realized when I set out to open the fine dining African-American restaurant in New York in the early 90s, I didn't understand what, what completely came with that. Black and white people thought I'd lost my mind. There's no such thing as fine dining African-American food. Everything we did in the kitchen, if we were black or brown, came under the heading of soul food. And soul food essentially was feel-good, comfort food, good-tasting, bad-for-you food. The idea that anything we would make should be paired with wine, elevated, and put on the stage with French or Italian was unheard of. And yet we did that. And by doing that, we gave Black chefs permission to tell their stories on a plate. We opened up a whole new window and an elevated experience where we should have been all the time, when you think in terms of culturally and historically, Asian and African cuisine, the two oldest cuisines on the planet. So my journey has really been following the path throughout the African diaspora on five continents, really chasing the knowledge of essentially how through slavery, Africa changed the global culinary conversation. The book that I wrote with J.J. Johnson, Between Harlem and Heaven, was essentially the book that turned an idea into a discipline. The scholarship was founded in, foundationally in the footprint of Africans on five continents who essentially were the foundation of culinary, both farming, agriculture, and hospitality. And 
took that stream of consciousness and molded it into a flavor profile and to consciousness wherein we created dishes that mirrored Africa's influence. And that, as the Cecil, was where we repaired those recipes and created them that ultimately won the James Beard Award. So essentially what happened is that I went from the focus of African-American food into the global landscape of who we are as African people on five continents. And that led me to my latest, biggest project of my life, which is Al-Kabulan, and you did pronounce it correctly. Thank you, Brad. That I opened in Dubai for the Expo 2020, which was the World's Fair in Dubai. 25 million people came through 22,000 square feet with 12 concepts. It was a huge success. And now I'm on a mission to take it all over the world and every metropolitan city that I can possibly find, think of. Because again, this is how we expand the knowledge of this incredible discipline that Africans have been practicing forever. And we modernized it and brought it to the foreground. I can't wait for you to experience. Chasing all of that is, is created. I spent a lot of time in Africa, East, West, South, North, Europe, and Asia, because the African footprint is there as well. Yeah, that's a lot. So let me, let me start with where you ended. And I know, Alexander, that you've been on this quest for some time, exploring the origins of African-American food through the Caribbean and tracing its origin back to Africa and then the African diaspora. And of course, since High on the Hog on Netflix, a lot more people are familiar and have had a better opportunity to understand this connection. But you were exploring this long before it became part of our language and, and how we talk about food and the continent. What inspired your initial curiosity? I think it was because of my cultural heritage. My father was born in Charleston, his mother in Beaufort, South Carolina. The low country, the Geechee people were essentially West African slaves who settled in the low country in that particular part of South Carolina and Georgia. The food was so akin to West African food. After my third restaurant in Grand Central Station, I took a 10-year hiatus to really understand my focus, my direction, and also recollect myself. And I started studying essentially beyond the American borders. Who were we through the lens of food? And that started a 10-year quest with trips essentially to all parts of Africa, South America. I spent a great deal of time in Brazil and also Colombia and Argentina, the Caribbeans, of course. And then all of that led me to, to Paris, to England, understanding that footprint. And it was bigger than I realized, but it was as important as what I thought telling the African-American story was all about. So the real the impetus for all of that, you could say, was the Geechee-speaking swagger of my grandfather and how culturally different the people of the low country were from anyone else. I grew up in Spartanburg, South Carolina. My grandfather moved the family from Charleston to Spartanburg. And we were the only household I knew in Spartanburg that ate low country cooking which was so different than the Piedmont kitchens of most of my friends. 
Piedmont being the upper northwestern part of South Carolina and North Carolina, the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, we weren't eating the same food. So I understood. You might even look at it the way Italian Americans or Irish or even the Chinese bring their customs. We brought our custom through our food from low country to up country. And that really ignited this whole thing. And then I went out to discover what the global traits and pathways were in our foodways. Fantastic. And I've opened a few restaurants, but pulling off a food hall concept sounds even more complicated in some ways than opening up a restaurant and factor in the fact that you're doing it in a foreign country. That is no small undertaking. So I know that you described the size, I think you said 22,000 square feet, 11 various food stalls or chefs, and millions of people coming through. What would you say was the biggest challenge? The biggest challenge is that I started building this thing from Harlem. It was during the pandemic, and I wasn't able to fly there for a long time. And so I was on Zooms about 10 times a day with my own staff and then the folks of Dubai and builders and architects and designers. It was a huge undertaking that I did really over Zoom initially. And you can imagine my first trip to see what we had created. But at the same time, I had the most amazing team. My business partner, Simon Wright, 20-year veteran of hospitality out of London with offices throughout the Middle East and northern part of Africa. We approached it, I think, with them tending to the day-to-day, I could focus on curating the chefs. I had to choose chefs from all over the diaspora that I wanted to participate in this, what I call a movement, an event. The, the approach was the African food hall with the transatlantic slave trade being mirrored in the fact that I was African-American. And I personally put in three concepts that spoke about Africa's transition from the continent across the Atlantic, which was very exciting. I had interviewed chefs from all over that I had zeroed in on and wanted to participate. And I flew them in. And initially, I designed all of the concepts myself. And I realized that's not authenticity. To create authenticity, I had to bring in other chefs. And we created a village and a tribe. It was exciting. And then initially with that, I brought in pop-up chefs. They would come in for a week from various parts of the world and offer their concepts. So we were always featuring new faces, new chef concepts, all under the umbrella of the African diaspora. It was tremendous. Really exciting. Yeah, very exciting. Alexander, were the chefs from the continent as aware of this growth in interest, I'll say, of the diasporic influence of African-American cuisine? And did they feel the same level of excitement that you felt about what landed on these shores here at home and the influence from Africa? Were they on the same page as you, I guess is what I'm saying? Completely. We're talking about chefs who are rewriting history and advancing the culinary expression in the countries that they come from. There are still people on the planet that think Africa is a country. 
<laughs> not a continent. It is huge. And it brings about, when you start to collectively engage in the chefs that are pushing the cuisine forward, and they have a tremendous appetite for what is going on the African-American scene. So it really came together in such a beautiful way. And this is a wonderful opportunity to share with you. I just signed a new book deal to write for Faden Press, a curation of African chefs who are expanding and pushing the narrative of African food in Africa. So that book will basically talk about the restaurant chef, the private chef, the event chef, the home chef, but people who are doing incredible culinary in their community and highlighting them. And because we want to take the mask and the confusion off of African food, people have stereotypes about what African food is. And believe me, it's really the wealth of it is extraordinary and so good and so creative and inventive. And you find, you start to see foundationally where a lot of the European food got its roots. It's so important, man. And congratulations on that book deal. You're elevating the food to a place where the cuisine, to a place where it naturally belongs. I know it's an uphill battle but certainly a really worthwhile undertaking. Man, I'm really proud of you for doing that and happy that it's in your hands. I've also, I think that I saw somewhere too, Alexander, maybe you mentioned that you have plans possibly to bring the food hall concept to the States, maybe to Harlem. Are there plans on tap for that? There are big plans. I've negotiated a space, hopefully to get the lease signed this month to bring a 15,000 square foot version of Al Kabulin to Harlem hopefully in the fall or early winter of 2023. And we've also started conversations and negotiate spaces in D.C., Detroit, talking to people in Atlanta. And again, I can't wait until it's everywhere, including Miami. And for the audience, can you tell us what Tabulin means? Why you selected that name? Oh, it's Garden of Eden, uh, Mother of Mankind. Al-Kabulin was the first written name of Africa. And of course, like everything else, when the Europeans showed up, they couldn't pronounce it. And so they renamed, they named Africa, Africa. But the original name is Al-Kabulin. It's an Arab word. And when I heard it, it just was everything. And I thought, this is where we start. Love that. Love that. I hope you've had your Earl Grey tea because I'm going to stretch your memory back a little bit. You and I met each other back in the illustrious 80s in New York City. And you reminded me a while back of a dinner that we shared. And as I mentioned, in 1994, you decided to pursue your interest in food and open Cafe Beulah as a fine dining, low country concept. And here's a recent quote of yours from Outlook magazine about your thinking at that time. I'll read it get your thoughts on the other side. It says, quote, I finally decided that whatever I was going to do professionally, I had to not only own a seat at the table, I needed to own the table. And that propelled me to open my first restaurant in 1994. I look back at how the music and the food created every container for all of my experiences in life and continue to. Essentially, I opened my first restaurant to take my kitchen public to feed and serve and nurture the world. It is a theme that I feel resonates with me personally, but I also feel particularly 
with the African-American community. The two, music and food, were so accessible, you could make up a tune and clap your hands and slap your hip and hum your way to glory if you needed to. And if you had something good to eat on that journey, it made it even better, end quote. I love that, man. I so love that. Brad, I needed to hear that today. That is just, I say a whole lot of things. But yeah. I needed to but hear that But slap your hip. Come on, man. To have a good biscuit and a good friend to laugh with. What, what's better in life, man? Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. That's a good time. That's a good time. That's a good time. So I love that quote, Alexander. Back in, we're talking 80s, 90s. New York had several Black-owned establishments or places with Black partners at that time. As I mentioned, Jezebel, of course, B. Smith's, the Shark Bar, Memphis, where I was involved. I mentioned Alberta. The creator of Jezebel, like yourself, was from South Carolina. And I know you come from a family of chefs, farmers, and musicians. So what all of that, that gumbo of inspiration, yes. man, you poured into what you did. Just, if you wouldn't mind, just take me back a little bit to Beulah and what you were thinking with what you put on the walls. Did I get the, was, were there butter tone walls or is that just how I, oh, yes, tell me yes, about it. Yes. Yeah. And Wayne's Cotton around, oh man, it was a beautiful place. Again, it was about taking my living room pup. One we didn't mention, which is my first book, Grace the Table. And Grace the Table essentially was how I became Alexander Smalls with recipes at the end of each chapter. I wrote this book after I opened Cafe Beulah, went in Marsalis, wrote the foreword. It was essentially it took you through my childhood to the first day I opened Cafe Beulah. And I poured my whole existence into this effort. It was truly a labor of love. And it was, at the same time, my way of creating home for all those people that I fed. And I've had a lot of people. You came through many times. Yeah. It, was, it was the home of the fashion people, the artists, the finance, and Black Hollywood, of course. I've fed everybody. I wanted to create something that was that said, welcome home when you walked in the door. I remember wanting to have the portraits on the walls and all those portraits came about. My mother sent up the photo albums, family photo albums. My great friend, my wonderful friend, the amazing artist Lorna Simpson, who is extraordinary photographer, she reshot all those photos in the family album, blew it up went out, found all the frames at antique stores, used stores. She framed them, put them on the walls. In fact, I now have them on the walls in my apartment in Harlem. But the whole idea was to say, you're home. This is home. This is your comfort place. This is my living room going public. And needed to feel like Sunday dinner every time you walk in that room. It was because something magical and beautiful and wonderful was going to happen. You were not only going to be fed the best food I felt you could find that spoke to the African-American kitchen, but you were going to be taken care of. I remember there was a customer who came into the restaurant prior to my coming in. He had made reservations. And so he said to, the, to my manager, is this the restaurant where the chef owner 
comes around to everybody's table and greets them. And she was a little taken by that, but she said, yes, he does. He's much here. And so the guy said, will he come to my table? And she said, yes, he's coming. He's coming. And so when she told me that story, when I came in, I realized all of that was how I created the magic of Cafe Beulah. Attentiveness, really being personable, turning everyone's experience into my experience and sharing that with them. When I first opened Cafe Beulah, I was in the kitchen, Chef Alexander carrying on, and half the rest of kept coming in the kitchen. It became clear I had to train my chefs and I had to be out there hosting. They came to see me and I needed to be available. So that was the spirit, the warmth, the love. And it was for me like Sunday dinner every night. Tremendous. I loved it. And it was foundational. Yes, I would certainly say so. And I have to say, listening to your, your instinct about the front of house presence, you know, I learned that from my dad, of course, the seller in yeah. black owned restaurant from 1970 and on onward. And I wouldn't classify the seller as fine dining. We had butcher block tables and Lanches Rosé was the extent of, <laughs> was the extent of our wine list. <laughs> we all had to start somewhere, brother. I love it. Yeah, it was fine dining for everybody who came. Hey, that's right. But we had white and rosé, so <laughs> make no mistake. But I will also say, though, that Alberta opening Jezebel in 85, I'd never, I, that room was enchanting to me, Alexandra, and I would classify that as fine dining. Would you not, did you not draw some, I know you, you loved Alberta, but wasn't she somewhat of an inspiration for you? Oh, come on. She was an elegant woman, and she created an elegant room. And she gave great attention to not only the offerings, but experience that she treated everyone to. She was personable, and she raised the consciousness. She, I would say, really made it possible for me to bring the ball over goalposts because she did the foundational work. Yeah. And you talk about every eye being on someone in the room and Alberta was in that room, boy, all eyes were on her. And I know, you know, you, again, I think, and I guess this is a question, your comfort from having performed on stage. I was very shy when I, when my dad finally let me out of the dish room and took my buster jacket <laughs> off and I got to put on my trusty blazer that I wore for the next 30 years. I was really shy, man. It was hard for me to approach tables. I, I had to build that up. Did you find as a stage performer that your comfort level in a room and in front of an audience, that that helped you as a host? Like you, I was very shy. But because of the performance, because of the understanding of what the job was, and it was not to be shy, that couldn't interfere with the task at hand. So my performance career, allowed me to approach strangers and make them guests and make them family, make myself available. It wasn't something that always came with comfort because I'd rather be in the background. But what I chose to do for a living, whether it be a performer or restaurateur or an activist, required that I be present and available and 
connecting the dots for everybody in the room. So I rose to the occasion. It wasn't easy. I might add. So fast forward a few years, a few decades, and I reached out to you when I heard about Minton's and the Cecil and you and Dick Parsons teaming up uh, and what you were planning on doing there. And I'd remembered reading about Robert De Niro when he bought that property initially, which is in Harlem. And at the time, it just didn't seem like the location, the history, De Niro and his restaurant partner, Drew, were the right fit. So when I heard about you and Mr. Parsons, I, I was very excited about that and was happy to hear that, that it was you. Of course, the Cecil helped to launch the career of JJ. I know he might have had a little bit of, of a following prior to that, Alexander, but certainly the Cecil and the book success helped to put him on the map. And your James Beard Foundation Award for your ode to Afro-Asian cooking titled Between Harlem and Heaven, winning an award for that. The Cecil was chosen by Esquire magazine, I think the year was 2014, as the best new restaurant of the year, launching a young, talented chef, prestigious awards, accolades. That's like winning the Super Bowl in our industry. <laughs> How did you process all of that good fortune? Oh, my. There were some tears. There were some tears. I approach everything as what is the work to be done? And that's life for me. I'm driven, I'm passionate, and I take every challenge as it comes and I pursue it and I bring it to its conclusion. It's interesting because before opening the Cecil and Mentons and reopening Mentons, I really spent a lot of time traveling the world, researching, creating the foundation of what that was going to be. I remember I was researching chefs and other staff members of color because I foundationally, I always liked to, to bring the village along with me. And I ran across this tape of J.J. Johnson doing a cooking competition show on TV. And he stood out. He stood out to me. He reminded me of my father. They had a similar look. But he was a fighter. He had great spirit. And it's clear that he wanted to go places with his career. He also cooked one dish my father made in our home, which was shrimp and grits. And my father made that dish every Sunday. So I said to myself, is this a sign? So I tracked him down. He was working. He had somewhat left the restaurant industry in that he was doing a corporate gig at J.P. Morgan, I and dining room there. And I found him, I invited him for breakfast, and we sat down with him, with each other. And I was telling him what I was up to, my idea of them opening these two big restaurants, blah, 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 blah. And I like what he's doing, and, and I might want to work with him as my chef de cuisine, which is like an executive sous chef. And I think I was crazy. I think he thought, what in the world? I'm talking about inventing cuisine. I'm talking about opening two restaurants at the same time. But for some reason, he hung around. I would invite him to parties at my house. I wanted him to understand who I was and the kind of food and the kind of entertaining I did. I took him to Africa, his first trip. We went to Ghana. It was part of a series of trips that I had been making for years. And we took over a hotel there and spent two weeks creating extraordinary African-American food, but also learning from the chefs there. And I tell you that story because that was foundational in creating the partnership we shared to do the work that we did, which I am very proud of, and making him the executive chef 
passing on the baton was essentially how I love to elevate the people that work with me and give them opportunity. With that said, we were on a mission. We were doing something so unique and we knew it. And there was a calling I felt subscribed to. And the work was hard and was challenging. But as you mentioned earlier, how rewarding. It was my Super Bowl. I love the restaurant. And when I walked in there and saw the beautiful, just the room that you created, both in Mittens and the Cecil, I knew that you were up to your best stuff there. Alexander, you, as we talked about, you've been doing so much traveling. You're seeing the world. This is a really strange time, we'll say. Certainly domestically, abroad, there's just so much going on. You can only take the news. I can only take the news in doses. And I try to stay informed, but I don't want to ruin every day. I want to, I want to feel good that I'm still here. And without overstating what we do in terms of hospitality and food, you think that dining and gathering and food offer us some hope? That's a good question. And I would say, yes, it does. I remember when I opened the Cafe Beulah and you know, white people would say to me when they'd come, because it was a very integrated restaurant. And that sounds odd to say in New York City in the early 90s, but it's true. So white people would say to me, where have all these beautiful black people been? I never see them. What a wonderful group of people. Black people would then say to me, how do you get white people to come to a black-owned restaurant? They're all over the place in here. And I say it because it's a black owned restaurant, but not a Black restaurant. It is a restaurant for all people. But what it brought to mind was the two things that Black and white people don't do together is eat and pray. For years, went to separate churches, and the restaurants were not necessarily mixed. For years, we could be in the restaurants, and we'd be the only Black people in there because it just wasn't homogenized. While it was integrated on paper, desire or willingness or whatever it was, or even the sense of being welcome, everybody that came to Cafe Beulah were welcome and they could feel and buy ownership. I say that to say that our commonality, our humanity, the things that we share as people, no matter where you come from, are real and foundational. It's only when you introduce power and control, which also is akin to financial dominance, where everything comes out in a negative and destructive fashion. And so I think that if we can keep in communing, eating together, laughing together, listening to music together, finding those common places where our humanity becomes more important than I need to dominate, than I need to oppress and essentially take advantage of one group of people, we have an opportunity. But I'm like you. What's going on in this country right now is overwhelmingly sad and challenging. It's also, it's time for all of this to come to a head. We've been wrestling with these same issues of who's on top, who's in charge. In less than 20 years, people of color are going to be the dominant species in this country. And the fear is, now what? Where's the power going? 
and who's going to retain the power. And a lot of this stuff is being done to make sure that one person, one vote isn't the end result of who we are. And the rigging and the rezoning and all this stuff people are trying to do, trying to disqualify the majority of black and brown people from the right to vote. It's madness. It's the worst of who we are that has been agitated over the last presidency. But we got to deal with this. I think the key word there, Alexander, is agitated because that what we're seeing existed. It never went away. But the, the scab, whatever metaphor you want to use, has been ripped off. But you answered that in exactly the way that, that I would want to hear about the answer to that question, as only Sir Smalls can so eloquently state. You mentioned, I'm winding down here. I have two more questions I want to touch on. And you mentioned prayer in your last answer here. And I'm curious, do you pray? Do you meditate? What's your remedy for this restless mind that, that we all have these days? I get up around four and five in the morning and I, for about two hours, and that period of time is writings that, this prose, it's muses. Isn't about writing a book or any of that stuff. It's not work. It's just the way in which I settle myself. I just write. I write verse. And that has been meditative for me. I believe in a higher power and I am engaged in positivity. For me, that's really what a higher power is all about. It is the premise of positivity. If that is foundational for you, because it doesn't matter what you call it. It doesn't matter if you're a Catholic, Jewish, or your religion is any other. There lies the confusion. What's really at the root of our power is our positive thinking. Because out of positivity comes joy and generosity, faith, nurturing, healing. All of that comes out of that. And I try to engage myself in positive engagement in the wee hours of the morning every day of my life. Wow. If we could put those things and keep those things at the top of the pyramid and do away with all of the other constructs, religion, race, gender, I think we would be a happier world. This is my last thing, and it's a request, actually. So (laughs) I want two dinners with Alexander Smalls. I want one at Alvin and Friends, our dear friend Alvin Clayton and Gwen Clayton, their lovely New Rochelle restaurant. I want, to, I want to gather with you there and hopefully Linda, Ambassador Shabazz, you and I can have a lovely dinner up there. And then I want a Sunday dinner at your lovely Harlem apartment. And that's a request. That is, okay. I'm asking if that's possible. Received. Received. Thank you, sir. I think it's what might be on the menu, Alexander, and what might I hear in the background? What might serenade us over dinner at, oh at the Smalls abode oh on you know, a Sunday? I'm, when it comes to music, really, because I go from the flash from classical to jazz, I could easily have on some spirited Kathleen battle, and then we go right into some sassy D.D. Bridgewater. And then a little Wenton, I can bring forth all of that. And then I usually break into Afro pop or Afro beat, which is my new thing. I should say, certainly the music I've been listening to for the last 20 years, which I love so much. That whole connection of who we are in that arrow beat pulse, which makes us global. I love it. 
Yes, yes. And what might you serve, sir? It will depend on how many of us are there. I love, I love my gumbo, and I do a couple of types. I do the more traditional, and do the Afro-Asian gumbo that is in between Harlem and Heaven. But I also love my okra fish and shrimp stew. If it's brunch, I may do you some shrimp and grits in honor of my dad with a crab meat gravy. So yeah, it's a lot to, to consider there. And I'm an inspirational chef. I tell people all the time, I never make the same thing twice, which means essentially I'm a chef who's always had chefs who's going to make that perfect dish for you. Me, I'm inspirational, like Berta Mae Grosner. I may have new ingredients and spices in, this, in that dish you had last <laughs> I'm okay with that. However it is, Brad, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Let's do that soon. Alexander Smalls, man, I'm so proud of you, sir. Keep up the important work that you're doing. Great to see you, brother, and I hope to see you in person soon. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. Thank you. What's happening, everybody? Here we are with my sister from way, way, way back. I know. It's the ways. we got to keep adding some ways. Ambassador Shabazz, what's happening? Hello, my dear. This was really wonderful for a whole lot of reasons. As he stated when you signed on, is that we all have history, which would set the tone of the wonderful conversation we got to listen to. And for me, just a reflection of the journeys that people travel in order to get to where it is we are now. And there are couple of things that he stated, that which it was about, we all have history, and also positivity is the source of one's power. I think those are resonating characteristics that are not specifically culinary focused, that when one wants to talk about capturing something about this interview with Alexander Smalls, it gives you a sense of his own journey and a consummate host we know in the salons at his homes, which are well known, but also the origins that he spoke of and how that bridges to his legacy to date. I think it's really key for us to reflect and even tally or take inventory about what is what are our own respective origins, what resonates, what stays with us, what messaging do we have from then to now? And when he talked about the Geechee culture and its preservational uh, components, which I grew up being very much aware of, although South Carolina was not a place I visited often, I was very much aware of the origins of the Defusky Islands, which is where the Geechees are from. And Defusky just really means the first key off of the South Carolina coastline. Just became Defusky. That's how things were named, but they are a preservational culture of the origins of their African selves, how they prayed, how they ate, how they prepared how births and deaths were treated. And so to know that amidst us in a contemporary way, we have the likes of certainly Alberta Wright and for a generation later, Alexander Smalls. And when you asked him about his walks and he mentioned Sugar Hill, I'm from that area. I mean, from Westchester, but 25 years in Harlem, I was on Convent Avenue and Sugar Hill is a reflective place, and I'm just glad to know that he's still there and bringing things like the African Food Hall and Kabulan there and the meaning of Akabulan so people can learn what that is, that before the name we have now, 
we actually started with Origins. So as someone who's traveled the world extensively, as you have, I know you spent quite a bit of time in Spain, you've been all over. What does it mean to you to know that the origin of so much of that cuisine that you've dined on is Africa, is the continent, but now is going to be celebrated in that way and put on the same level as other cuisines, Italian, French, Asian? So if you just tell it from a historic place, people don't have to have the battle of race as he referenced, right? You just give the real information of where things began and what influences based on travel and navigation and enable people to just surrender to the palette of food and the gathering space, fellowship that takes place, the music, the backgrounds. I think people will simply enjoy it, but we have to inform people. We can no longer push the origins and the richness and the contributions of the continent aside. We can't make it secondary and we can't act like all of ourself comes from a post-restorative place, but an origin place and that we need to be in that narrative. It's as simple as that. So when I hear about it, you can't talk about Mediterranean food without the influences that are shared. So when you talk about a Mediterranean diet, it's not just the diet on the European side. It also includes North Africa. It also it extends. And North Africa is not really separate from sub-Saharan, just other than tribes and everything. But there's such shared cross-sectional characteristics of culture that when you simply study it, in fact, sociologically, if I could put it there, you start to realize where things come from and what the origin is and that we all have an opportunity through hospitality and history and all of those things to share in it. We're not naturally a stingy people, right? So we welcome everyone to really love what we love. That's right. That's right. I remember we touched on this a bit with Bryant Terry and his vegan cookbooks, but I found it even more apparent to me the contrast between what African-Americans have been programmed to believe is part of our necessary diet and what the, Af the continent had as a regular diet. In other words, you mentioned Mediterranean. We all have heard the buzz around the longevity in the Mediterranean diet, but I think this is just a really great time to start to understand the origins of African cuisine and the food that we love, the fried chicken, collard greens, that's celebration food. That's once in a while food, but that's not everyday food. And for our health and well-being, that's the point that I'm making. And also we're blessed with having Chef Pierre Tiam, the Senegalese yeah. uh, chef who also talked about fonio and the grain, uh, the millet, and also preserving so that the farmers there are the owners, the proprietors of that grain to export. Because once we do find out in other parts of the world the value of different foods, we misappropriate it in the West, right? And we put another name origin on it and people presume one thing or the other. So it's just up to us to make sure that since we're ready to share, that we just understand where that comes from, where in the world any said food or fruit or vegetable that's nourishing. I think during the pandemic, we couldn't see doctors, right? And people in their meditative state or stilled state or cabin fevered state were moved to be quite innovative. And a lot of the natural health searches started to arise. What does one eat? So it's not hunger, it's fulfillment. What do you eat in order to nourish as opposed to eat to overload? 
And so that was really great. But it's interesting, we talk about gathering, and I know recently you just had a college reunion. And how was that? That was fantastic. And, you know, what it reminded me of is just how good for the soul laughter and gathering with friends can be. It was the absolute best medicine. Uh, my UMass basketball teammates. So any plans? Did it make you create new businesses? And No, I wouldn't say that. But actually what, what did come out of it was something that I had read and I've talked a little bit about is this idea of Sunday dinner. I know, Alexander, we talked about that just a couple of minutes ago. But this idea of gathering once a week with friends and everybody maybe brings a little something so there's not too much pressure. I know Linda's probably looking at me like, you better be cooking too if the first come over. But, you know, just everybody brings a little something, but just to end the week and start the new week with a good evening, some good food and good friends and some laughter. I think I'm really feeling that. It's the truth. I've been on the road, as you've known, but in each of those spaces, I have found it essential for all those gathered and working hard to conclude each long week with a, a night out. And, and that's at a restaurant or something. And so the last couple of weeks, we've hosted a number of bought out houses to screen The Woman King and very stirring film on many levels. We've done it with high school students, with communities, all ranges and stages of their respective lives. And then we have a post chat. And then some of us will peel off at the very end and go break bread somewhere. And in New Jersey, my new spot when I'm in Newark is a place called Swahili village. Oh my God. I don't even know how to be poised when I talk about <laughs> that. Oh my God. I love it. Uh, I love it, it. It's pretty new, but it, now that I've been frequenting going into the city, it is, and I do it at not as just a place to dine. I do it as the special place to dine. While we're working hard in the day, some people are just grabbing a meal. But this is when I want to say thank you to all those who gathered. And I'm a person that loves side fixing. Main plates are one thing, but I'm always looking at the what's on the side. And uh, my favorite is the red beans and spinach, which is simmered in a coconut milk and herbs mm. and spice. Oh, yeah, you know, when I say that I have to close my eyes and not talk to not anybody so that I can just savor. So that's what I do. My niece's daughter was with us and she had a salmon and I wound up getting salmon on the side because it was so good. I'm a creature of habit. So now I have to make sure when I go next time, I order that salmon along with my simmered red beans. Fantastic. I want to let folks know that you are always up to stuff that you keep under wraps that you share it on this show. But other than that, you do your work pretty quietly and buy out these theaters for uh, students to see fantastic films like the one you mentioned. I know you're going to Belize to do the same thing. And for anybody in our audience that wants to reach Ambassador Shabazz, email me and yeah. I will put you in touch with the ambassador and uh, you will learn more about what she does with her foundation, what she does as an ambassador. And I think she deserves to be supported and anything that you'd like to know, I'm happy to make that contact. So Ambassador Shabazz, how we move, let's keep moving. And uh, always good to see you. You too, my dear brother. Speak soon.